Art of the Cut is brought to you by Evercast. Evercast is the first real-time collaboration platform built for creatives by creatives with video conferencing and HD live streaming in one web-based platform. Stay tuned for a special offer later in the show. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. Today, I'm talking with Arthur Schmidt, ACE. Arthur won an Emmy and an Ace Eddie for his editing of Michael Mann's film, The Jericho Mile, back in 1979, and has been winning awards and cutting iconic films ever since. He was nominated for an Oscar and an Ace Eddie for Coal Miner's Daughter, nominated for a BAFTA for Back to the Future. He was nominated for a BAFTA and an Ace Eddie and won his first Oscar for Who Framed Roger Rabbit, was nominated for an Ace Eddie for The Last of the Mohicans, was nominated for a BAFTA and won an Ace Eddie and an Oscar for editing Forrest Gump, and was nominated for an Ace Eddie for Castaway, won an Ace Eddie for Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl, and finally won Ace Eddie's Career Achievement Award in 2009. After all that, I don't even know if it's worth covering the rest of the filmography, but he has also edited excellent films like Adam's Family Values, Death Becomes Her, Back to the Future 2 and 3, Ruthless People, Fandango, and The Idolmaker. It was an honor to have a chance to talk about his legendary career and about editing wisdom drawn from more than four decades in the editor's chair. It's a pleasure meeting you. I am so honored to be able to talk to you. I'm really interested in Jericho Mile. Was that your first project and you were nominated for an ace or won an ace and an Emmy for that? No, I don't think it was my first project, but it was certainly my first TV movie. And I've done mostly little bits and pieces of TV before that and co-editing jobs like on Marathon Man. But I think, as I probably mentioned, I was hired to do the running sequences only in the Jericho Mile. And Michael Mann came in after I was there for about three days and I'd started editing the opening sequence. And he had a friend with him and he said to me, he said, Artie, this is so-and-so, he's an agent. He doesn't know anything about film editing. Would you please show him you know, how much you've done? And I said, well, Michael, I've only done about 30 seconds. There's so much material on this opening running uh, sequence that you know, I only have 30 seconds. He said, well, just you know, run that for him and tell him what you do. So I ran it and I had the music, Sympathy for the Devil there. So that helped a great deal. And Michael said, thank you very much when I'm finished and left the room. And the next day when I came in, I found out that he'd fired his original editor, whom I had not met yet, and turned the whole movie over to me. And because it had an air date, he was now going to find somebody else to cut the running sequences. Wow. So he hired somebody who'd cut a running sequence for a Budweiser commercial, <laughs> and that didn't work out. And then he dumped the whole movie on me. So I did recut what little of the running sequences the previous editor had done, and then just took over the whole movie. And I was hoping I wouldn't have to recut some sequences, but they were badly edited. Mm. So I had to recut the whole movie. One of the things that I noticed about those running sequences was the use of some slow-mo that's in there. Is there a trick to getting into and out of slow-mo when you're cutting an action sequence? 
No, I'm not aware of any tricks because, <laughs> you know, that was the first time that I'd ever done something like that. And it was the material that I was given that I had to work with and I had to find a way to make it all work. So dissolves here and there certainly helped. Mm -hmm. And then quite often I would try and find a matching movement from the end of one cut to the beginning of the next cut so that you just had this imitation of a wipe. So I was looking for any way that would make a cut. So whatever worked for me. Yeah. And then there were some dissolves in there, but in looking at some of your later work in a sequence like that, it seems like later on that you weren't using as many dissolves. Do you feel like there was something specific to that sequence or was it evolution of the way you edit? I know it was very, very specific to that sequence. We started going into more and more into slow motion and I was trying to make it seem as if we were in the runner's head. And this is the euphoria that he was sensing and feeling. And that was the main idea behind that, plus the use of music in that scene. Yeah, I love that idea of getting inside the runner's head. It's a perspective thing, right? Obviously in those scenes, even though he was being watched by people around him, you're trying to stay more on his perspective, maybe? I mean, I know that was a long time ago that you edited that movie, so. Well, I wanted to stay as much as possible with him and give some kind of indication of what was going on in his head at the same time. But I had to cut to the other various prison groups to see their reaction to this runner guy that they knew and liked or didn't like. So there was a combination of when to cut to the white supremacists, when to cut to the black group, and then later to the uh, Chicano groups. So mm -hmm. it was complicated. Yeah, that's the way the movie starts. And then you later learn kind of the allegiances throughout the prison. So oh, right. just kind of setting that up in that first scene. Yeah, one of the many challenges was when to cut to the various groups, the white supremacists, mm -hmm. the, the black group, and the Chicano group. It made me laugh when you said that they hired somebody to cut the running sequences that cut running sequences in a Budweiser commercial. I think Hollywood has a way of kind of pigeonholing, like, oh, he's a comedy editor, or he's a guy that can cut running sequences. No, that's true. If he could cut a running sequence for a Budweiser commercial, we can certainly do this. But you know, it was like <laughs> they hired me because they thought I'd cut the running sequences in Marathon Man. So, hey, let's get this guy. But uh, there was obviously some truth to that because one of the producers of the Sheriff Isle was an assistant director on Marathon Man. So he knew there was an editor on Marathon Man who probably cut some of the running sequences. Yeah, but looking at your career, though, you have hardly been pigeonholed. No, I've been very lucky to have fallen into the movies that I've fallen into and to work with some great directors like Bob Zemeckis and Michael Mann and Michael Aptad. When you're working with those directors, does it take some time for you to get used to a new director, for you to feel them out, to feel comfortable, to know how they like to work? Oh, absolutely. You know, especially when you're doing the first movie with them, you want to establish a relationship. And what I always tried to do was get a cut sequence in front of them 
as soon as possible so that we knew we were on the same page and that we're in sync together. So yeah, it was always seemed like no matter how many times you've edited a movie and maybe won some prizes along the way, you're still <laughs> insecure because this is a new movie. You've never done one like this before. And I always had that feeling, <laughs> am I up to this? Yeah, it always amazes me. I've interviewed 300 editors at this point, and you're an Oscar winner. People like Carol Littleton that edited E.T., she's like, I, I go in in the morning, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to cut a scene. You know, I talked to William Goldenberg, same thing, Oscar winner. You know, I'm, some days you go in and you're like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this today. It's No, that's a very real feeling. I always felt that too. You think that you're going to be comfortable and yet you have a new sequence, something that you've never cut before and you just have to find a way to do it right and to find the drama or the comedy in it. Mm -hmm. It was always, always a challenge. And, and Coal Miner's Daughter... You know, I'd never cut a musical before. I'd never cut music numbers before. Not that they were complicated because it was mostly just sissy singing, but still it's music, it's drama, it's musical beats, mm -hmm. rhythms. One of the things that I noticed with that movie was a beautiful sense of the scenes building to dramatic moments. Can you talk a little bit about not necessarily the pacing of the individual edits, like the rhythm of the edits, but pacing a scene so that it builds to an emotional moment and doesn't take too long to get there, but doesn't get there too fast? Well, for me, I think that's mostly just gut reaction responding to the material because I don't have any method that I use to cut musical numbers or dramatic scenes or comedy. I just have always tried to let the material speak to me and find the best way to edit the scene with the material that I'm given. Do you have a specific approach, especially, I mean, now that it's more digital, do you do selects reels? Do you watch your dailies in a specific order? How do you start to build a scene from nothing? I always went through and made selects. And when I was doing it on film, I'd pull that role out because it was the best role of close-ups that I had and, and worked from there. And then also I'd make notes about readings and what was good about a, a particular take and then narrow it down to the best master the best over the shoulder the best medium shot so that i can get rid of some of the material or push it off to the side and it doesn't feel so intimidating mm -hmm. when you're looking at how much film there is on a particular sequence and then with your selects narrowed to various setups is it then more a question of when you want to be in each shot or do you build, I'm assuming most people tend to build linearly, finding what's the best shot to start the scene on and then go from there? Oh, no, that's exactly what I would do. The obvious rule of thumb is you'd start a sequence in the master and then move gradually towards the other angles, eventually ending up in close-ups. Mm -hmm. but. That's kind of a basic rule of thumb, but you can throw all that out and do it the way you feel or the way the material starts to speak to you and break all the rules. Yeah, absolutely. Do you remember when the first project was that you switched from film editing to nonlinear? Yeah, Forrest Gump was the last movie I did on film and The Birdcage was the first digital film. 
Wow. Forrest Gump was cut on film. Chem, Moviola, uh, Steamback? Chem. A chem? Chem, yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, obviously, like all of us film editors, I had to go and learn nonlinear editing. And I specifically said, I don't want to learn all of that stuff that the assistant does or has to do yep because i'll never use it i said i just want to learn the tip of the iceberg so to speak so that i can just concentrate on editing per se you know made some sense to me but at the same time i always felt insecure because up until that time i knew how a cutting room worked i knew how it was organized i knew where the outtakes were what the outtakes were and so there was a certain insecurity there and I relied on my assistants for a lot of help and getting me out of a technical jam if I got into one, which I did. <laughs> I've found that most Hollywood feature film editors, even documentary editors, rely heavily on their assistants for that kind of stuff. And you're like, hey, I just need to know kind of the basics to get this scene together and the vision is much more creative than it is technical. And then on Birdcage, were you on Avid? Uh, yes. Uh-huh. Do you remember, like, around you, the other editors, your other colleagues, people that you spoke to, friends in the business, how they felt about the transition to nonlinear and what the discussions were? You know, I don't remember. I just remember that it was something that everybody was doing and that I had to do, and that's the way film editing was going. I don't know if people were going to let me edit on film if in fact it had been shot on film and then transferred to digital but almost everything was being shot on digital Mm -hmm. i mean forrest gump is right on the edge of that kind of transition it could have been cut film it could have been cut non-linear probably that year and that seems like a daunting movie to have cut on film was there just a huge amount of footage i would think for a film of that type There was a lot of footage, but I wouldn't have said that there was a huge amount of footage, as as I recall. Mm -hmm. You know, Tom Hanks, from the very beginning, he was doing a wonderful job as Forrest, so there wasn't an enormous amount of film to find the performance of Forrest. I think I'm right in saying that. No, I can't say that there was an enormous amount of film, except on... Some of the running sequences where uh, some of it was shot a second unit. But no, no, there wasn't, as I recall, an enormous amount of overwhelming film where I might have needed to get somebody else in to cut sequences. Got it. Maybe I'm more thinking on the scope of his life, (laughs) needing to have so much footage. I'm imagining it more than anything else. Was that a challenging movie specifically the challenge of finding the tone and balancing the tone of something like the comedy of, you know, I think of the ping pong sequence or when Forrest goes to the White House. It's a very funny scene compared to some of the more dramatic scenes, finding that tonal balance with a film. I don't remember that it was. I just remember, you know, when you mentioned now going to the White House, etc. I just cut the scene for what the scene seemed to be. And mm-hmm. it, yeah, it's a funny scene. So you just want to get the most humor out of it. I think I knew pretty obviously what <laughs> the scene was all about and it had to be fun for everybody because it's pretty silly. Yeah, I was certainly blessed to have the wonderful performance from Tom Hanks. Mm-hmm. And then you cut another film with him too, right? Castaway? 
Yes, yeah. Was that a challenging film to cut just because so much of it was with one person? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. One person on an island and so many montages in the scene about them surviving on the island, etc. So yeah, it was a big challenge. I, I, I said to Bob when he gave me the script, I said, hey, you're, you're <laughs> making a sort of Boy Scout manual about how to survive on a desert island. And you know, that's more or less what it was, but what a bold thing for Bob to try and make because he did a beautiful job. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, gave me wonderful material that I was determined not to screw up or to sentimentalize or try and get any phony emotion out of what was going on with Tom and the character at that time. To get back to that question about directors, since you mentioned Zemeckis, do you find that you need to change your methodology or the way that you work for each director? Do you find that with Zemeckis, you've got a, oh, I'm not going to show him something that's rough or he can handle something that's rough and another director can't or? No, I never had that. I would just edit each scene as they'd come in and if necessary, show it to him if he had the time while he was shooting or if he wanted to come in on weekends, then I'd show him or if I was feeling not secure about how I'd edited a scene, then yeah, I'd have him come in. It was easy for me to say to him, I don't get this. I don't quite understand why you shot this scene the way you did. And I don't know quite what to do with it. He'd give me an indication or tell me if I was on the right track, etc. I think that's a powerful lesson in humility for some maybe beginning editors that wouldn't feel like they could do that. I mean, I know that on a movie that I cut recently, I felt pretty comfortable with most of the scenes. And I got to one scene where I'm like, I do not know what the idea was here. And you have to ask. I don't think there's a problem in asking and saying, where were we going with this scene, right? You got to talk to the director. Oh, absolutely. That happened to me a lot with the Jericho Mile and Michael Mann. Once he turned the whole movie over to me and got rid of the previous editor, I can't tell you how many times I'd, I'd cut a scene and then look at the material for the next scene. And I'd go into Michael and I'd say, Michael, I don't understand why you shot this scene the way you did. And I don't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. I, I said, would you, would you come into the room and kind of help me out? And he would say, no, 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 you just go on and do whatever you feel like doing. And I said, well, okay, and I'd go. And just having him say that gave me total freedom to screw it up or do whatever I wanted, and I did. But there were so many sequences like that where I said, oh, God, I, I don't know what to do with this scene. And he was probably happy to see what your vision of the scene was. He knew what his vision of the scene was, so he could always get it to that point probably, but why not see what your vision was? Yeah, no, I, you know, I hope he had a vision of, <laughs> of what the scene was, but he couldn't tell me what it was until he saw what I did to try and find his vision in the material. We had a great relationship. It was a lot of fun and hard work and long hours and seven <laughs> days a week, but we were very comfortable together. That's great. So we kind of talked about that first idea of, okay, when I get the dailies, I cut the scene together. But then there's a much longer process of 
discovering the film from those assembled scenes and the process that happens after that when things are in context. Can you talk about some of the things that you've discovered in various films, whatever year it was, whether it was from Jericho Mile to Pirates of the Caribbean, how the film evolves and what the process is once you're done with the editor's cut? Well, once you're done with the editor's cut, then of course you're working with the directors. So it's the two of you just honing in on the movie and getting it down to size and getting the best performances. Well, I'm kind of interested in, since you're originally a on-film editor, has the process changed much? Like now it's so easy to put the assembly together and say, oh, things really have to change. Now that we see the movie in context, we need to flip things around and this scene's got to be much shorter and we need to do a different reaction shot here so that that gives some foreshadowing later on in the movie. Was that process much different when you were cutting on film of revising and seeing things in context? I mean, it was only different in that one was on film and you had to unstick the cuts and rather than, you know, my favorite button on digital editing was the undo button. (laughs) So making changes digitally was just much easier and much faster, even though quite often I have to rely on my assistance for a little bit of help there, especially if the director was in the room and wanted things to go a little faster. Another movie that I'm interested in the challenge of cutting was Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Because that's pre-NLE too, right? Yes. Yeah, that was all on film. Mm. And all without any animation in it. No animation in it when I cut it. It was just spaces for the animated character for Roger or whoever the animated character was in the scene. That was just a big hole there for a space. Wow. And then those things were added later. Did you have to imagine things? Like I think of even things that were shot maybe as a plate, somebody's eyes bugging out of their head or something like that. I did have to imagine things, but one of the blessings was the first take of every setup for a scene had somebody walked a dummy of Roger Rabbit through the scene (laughs) So I always knew where Roger was meant to be, or you know, if it was a medium shot, there was an empty space where the animated character was going to be. And of course, there was a live actor, Bob Hoskins, there. So it was pretty obvious that that space was going to be filled by the animated character. And I always had the dialogue. There was always somebody reading Roger's dialogue off screen, off camera. So it was... A challenge to do, but it was a very invigorating challenge because everybody who preceded me had done their homework and done a beautiful job to set it up for editing. I always knew where Roger was. I always knew where the other animated characters were meant to be. So everybody on that film did such a great job. I can't say that it was ever easy, but it was as easy as it possibly could be because everybody did such great work. Everybody that preceded me. Obviously, animation takes a long time to do. Did you come back when the animation was done to edit that in, or were you off onto another project by then? No, I was on Roger Rabbit from start to finish because there was always work to do. I was, as I recall, I don't think I was ever 
sitting back. <laughs> There's a scene in there where they go into Toontown, and that was shot about, I don't know, a month or two after the main film was shot. So there was always things to do and cutting down. And I don't recall <laughs> that I was ever sort of sitting back and idle waiting for animation to come in. We'll be back in a moment with more of my conversation with Arthur Schmidt. Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by Evercast. It's hard to beat the ease of sitting shoulder to shoulder with a director, cutting together in real time. The Evercast platform gives you that in-person experience no matter where you are. You can securely stream your Avid, Premiere, or any other NLE in 1080p with ultra-low latency. Plus, you can video chat, record, draw on the screen, and even make time-stamped notes. No more uploading or downloading of files. No more installing special hardware or sending notes back and forth. Evercast now offers flexible plans to make it accessible to more creatives. And in the month of February, Art of the Cut listeners can save $50 off their first subscription by heading to evercast.us slash AOTC. That's evercast.us slash AOTC. And now back to my conversation with Arthur Schmidt. I was trying to look through some of your filmography. When you got to Pirates, that was not the first time you'd not worked solo. You'd worked a couple of times with one other editor, correct? Yes. Some co-editors. But that was one that had a few more editors. Can you talk about editing with a team instead of editing by yourself? Yes. I was not the first editor on Pirates of the Caribbean. The other two guys were there ahead of me. And Disney had hired me to edit a movie under the Tuscan sun, which was a very popular book. And that was going to be made into a movie. And it was with a first time director who was a woman. And they wanted me to be there to edit the film and to sort of guide her along. And also one of the perks of that movie was that I'd get to go to Italy. <laughs> That's a big perk. And be on location in Tuscany, and I'd be able to be in Rome, and I'd be able to work in Cinecita, where all the great Italian directors had worked. And, and it also meant for my wife going back to where she grew up. Rome oh, was wow. her home. And at the last minute, Disney called me and said, Artie, we can't afford you. You, you can't go to Tuscany and do uh, oh, no. the Tuscan sun. And I said, oh, no, no, no. I'll come down in my price. And they said, <laughs> no, 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 no. I just... Hold on a minute. We want to put you to work on Pirates of the Caribbean because the studio is really nervous. The movie is going way over schedule, way over budget, and they're terrified of Johnny Depp's performance. So I said to them, I don't want to work on a movie that's based on a dumb, stupid Disney ride <laughs> that I really sort of hated. There was a time during one summer in my youth when I was a youth counselor at a summer camp and we used to take the kids to Disneyland and I got so fed up with going on the Pirates <laughs> of the Caribbean ride with those kids and I, I said, oh no, I can't do this. But anyway, you know, I thought it was because Disney was unhappy maybe with the way the film was being edited by two editors who maybe were relatively unknown to Disney at that time. But I went in my first day and they put me in a projection room so that I could see the 85 minutes that the two other editors had cut. And they'd done a beautiful job. It's a first cut and it was terrific. And 
And I came out of the projection room. They were both waiting for me <laughs> to see what I thought. And I told them, man, I thought it was great. In fact, I said to them, you know, I don't know what I'm doing here. And then we obviously worked together and divided the film up into thirds. And I got the opening third. And my big job was Johnny Depp's performance because he was all over the place. And there was an awful lot of footage. I'd never seen so much footage on one actor trying to find his character. And then trying to shape that performance, obviously. Yeah, that was an enormous amount of work. What were your guiding principles with that? Because it's a classic performance. I mean, everybody knows that performance, but it is right on the edge. I mean, as an actor, you've really got to go out there (laughs) quite a bit and trust your editor, actually. I mean, I think you've got to trust the editor to find the best moments and to build a performance that's cohesive. Well, that was my job in the first third of the movie. Disney was panicked that their big summer movie was going to feature possibly gay (laughs) sailor. (laughs) And they really were concerned about that. So it was a huge challenge because there was so much footage on Johnny's performance and he was all over the place, but got it down to an acceptable Johnny Depp performance. The trick with that, of course, is that working with two other editors and a performance that needs to be crafted like that, you've all got to be taking Johnny in the same direction, right? Because... If you're choosing more understated performances or more over-the-top performances and the other guys are choosing more understated performances, that's not going to work for the cohesiveness of the film. Did you have conversations about it? or You know, I don't remember that we did. We just knew that we had to get an acceptable performance out of Johnny and the two other editors had already been conscious of that. Mm -hmm. Not that Disney was aware of what a good job they were doing. Mm-hmm. The other two editors were just kind of unknown quantities to the people at Disney, where I was a known quantity because of Roger Rabbit and other movies that I'd done there. They did a wonderful job. Do you think that working on an NLE has changed either your approach or the pacing or anything about the way you edit? If there was a change, I wasn't aware of it. I was kind of determined not to let that happen, even though I wanted to be open to anything new that the nonlinear editing opened me up to. But I didn't want to close any doors about the new way of doing what I did. So I tried to just do what I always did, tell the story. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about the difference or the benefits from watching dailies back the way that you used to watch dailies compared to the way that it's probably changed since you've been on NLEs? Or have some of your productions actually done daily screenings with heads of departments and that kind of thing? I don't remember that we did that with nonlinear editing. I think in most cases, the studio heads would get their version, their nonlinear dailies, and we would get ours and go from there. I think that's... Mm-hmm the way it worked, if I remember. Uh, I don't remember trying to remember sitting in at a, well, so yeah, on, on the birdcage with Mike Nichols, we did go to dailies. Mm. But that was transitional, right? As you said, that was your yes. first yeah. film. But, That's right. but did you, on the films before that, was there a typical daily screening with the director, with the uh, cinematographer? Oh, yes. Yeah, always. Can you talk about the benefits of doing it that way? 
Well, sitting with the director and seeing it through his eyes and being there, you kind of feed off each other's vibrations and then talk about what you've seen afterwards and make your select takes. So continuing on this idea of dailies, because at some point it stopped and didn't you feel like that you were going to lose something by not having that typical dailies screening? Yes, yes. I'm just trying to think of what happened on subsequent movies where there were dailies and can't remember uh, whether sitting with Bob Zemeckis and looking at digital dailies. I think we all kind of went our individual way Mm -hmm. where the director would look at his dailies when he got home because he could do that digitally. Yeah. And some kids, I think, look at them on his iPad or something in the car on the way home. (laughs) Exactly. Of course, if he had a driver, which most directors did. But yeah, it all changed. You'd get his notes the next day. Can you give some examples of working styles? Did many of your directors want to sit with you? Was that too frustrating and boring, or was it simply sitting in, watching a cut, giving some notes, and saying, I'll be back in a day or something? With Bob Zemeckis, we said that his favorite part of making a movie is editing. And Bob was in the room most of the time. You know, he might, towards the end of the day, give me some changes, and he'd leave, and I'd work a couple more hours making his changes. But most of the time in post production, after he'd had his maybe two weeks off to recover and give me a chance to get the whole movie into an editor's cut, a first cut, then, no, he was there. It's his favorite part of making movies is editing, so he says. So, you know, obviously he's great at it, but he was never somebody who was sitting there saying, do this, do that. It was always a combination of of the tools and just listening to what a very intelligent, smart, movie loving guy has to say. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's a difference in watching a film in a projection room where you don't have control versus when you're on an Avid sometimes and you're screening on the Avid and you can stop and make changes immediately? Does that change things for you? Oh, yeah, sure. In the old days, like you said, if you're running in a projection room, you can't stop and make changes, but you can stop the projector and run the film backwards and then forward again to specifically examine a cut or whatever the director might be concerned with. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that rock and roll with 35 millimeter <laughs> reels in the projection room took place. Yeah. I'm still really interested in the idea of the process, especially with somebody that loves editing as much as you're saying Mr. Zemeckis did. What was the process of getting film from the editor's cut? What were the things that you were seeing that needed to change as you were going through? Well, obviously, you have the director sitting next to you and he sees what he says and talks about what he likes or doesn't like. And we're always reviewing the outtakes and different performances from the actors. So we're wide open to ideas and changes and things that... I might have thought of as I was editing different ways to do a scene or a portion of the scene, but obviously I have to make a choice, a decision, and do it the way I ended up doing and showing it to Bob and then talking about other possibilities with him and waiting to see his reaction to what I've done. Mm-hmm. I've had the discussion with many editors about the choice when you're cutting the editor's cut 
whether you diverge at all from the script. Are you in one camp or another? Because some people say, oh, if I think I got to drop out two or three lines and the scene's going to be better, then I do it. And other editors are like, no, editor's cut is always done to the script. Well, I'm in the last category because my experience of doing it the other way is that they always miss what you've taken out. And I'm <laughs> always sure why it was always better for me to let the director see the whole scene without taking anything out. Otherwise, it's disconcerting for the director because unless you tell them in advance, they're going to say, well, why did you do that? You know, I like that bit that you took out. Or I wish you hadn't done that and we could have talked about it after I see it. So to me, it was always best to put it into the first cut the way the director expected to see it and the way it was scripted. And then what's your approach as you move on from that? You've obviously got an idea. Oh, I think this scene would be better without the first three or four lines. Do you wait to see whether the director has the same feeling or do you instantly start saying, hey, what do you think about dropping those lines? Or is it on a per director basis, depending on how you know they like to work or your relationship with them? Well, I think it's a little bit of everything that you just said. You know, it is about the relationships and how free and open you feel that you can be with them. And just to see if maybe they're going to say the same thing that you're feeling and then go from there. I've worked with such wonderful directors that they're also good editors and know when a scene is playing too long or when there's some dialogue that we can lose. So it's uh, back and forth process with the two of you and then with the producers and then the studios and then preview audiences telling you how you should make your movie. (laughs) Do you sit in on those screenings? Do you like to do that? Or do you find that there's a value, not necessarily in the notes that you get from a screening, but in the sense of the room, reading the room as you're doing the screening? No, I like to be in those screenings with the producers and studio execs for the most part. Sometimes studio execs, the first time they see it is at a preview or screening just before a preview. But I want to be in those screenings or certainly in the meeting that takes place afterwards so that I hear what they have to say and we can talk about things. Does it give you a fresh eye to the materials? It kind of gives you some objectivity to see how a screening audience is feeling about it. I feel like I see the film differently than when I see it in my edit room. Oh, absolutely. That was always the case to see it with an audience and their reaction to it. And that happened with the directors that I've worked with, that they always liked to bring a trusted friend into the projection room to look at their cut to just get some feedback from somebody who was knowledgeable about filmmaking and whose reaction the director felt that they could trust. So Mm -hmm. that was never a problem for me. Do you bring in assistance as you're cutting a scene before you even maybe play it for the director to show, you know, oh, what do you think of this? Uh, Just to get another pair of eyes or... I would do that occasionally, but I regret not having done more of that because it would have been good for me and good for them to see what Mm -hmm. an editor goes through and putting together a first cut 
in my case, my assistants were always so busy, so overloaded with work that it I sometimes felt it just cut into their time. But I wish that I had done more of that. But like I said, uh, everybody was always so busy that they just didn't always seem time for that and know what it meant. More overtime for them, not in terms of money, but just in terms of cutting into their personal their life. And yeah. Personal life. Yeah. I read an interview with you. You mentioned the difficulties of cutting action scenes, and you said, I think dialogue scenes are harder than action scenes. <laughs> I don't know if you remember saying that or whether you think it's true anymore, but can you talk about how an action scene and a dialogue scene are different in approach or why you think one is harder than another? Well, I think the dialogue scenes are just so much more subtle, obviously, than action sequences. You can sort of get away with murder and action sequences <laughs> if, you, if you just cut, cut, cut and dazzle the eyes of the studio heads, whereas dialogue sequences are much more full of nuance and subtleties than action sequences. But I have one final question for you for our time together. I really appreciate all of your generosity of spending some time with us to talk about editing. You have won a huge number of awards. You've probably won more awards for movies than most people have actually cut movies. That's certainly true for myself. Can you tell me what you look for when you're putting in your Oscar vote or your Ace Eddie vote, what makes you think a movie is well edited when you're trying to vote for movies? Well, that's a tough question. Just it's your reaction, my reaction to the way it all works in a smooth and dramatic or comedic way and that there's nothing in what I've seen that bothers me or jerks me around or manipulates me. That's one of the things that we editors get accused of is manipulation. And I always hated that term. And I always never felt that that was what I was trying to do. I was always trying to be honest to the material. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, just kind of sit back and watch the movies and react to what I've seen in terms of editing and good editing or bad editing. I've got to follow up on that because... I'm very interested in that word manipulation when it comes to editing. And I can certainly understand that you don't want to feel like you're being manipulated. But don't you think that so much of editing is manipulating the audience and trying to be invisible about that, but that you are manipulating? You're trying to decide, hey, I'm going to this reaction shop because I want to manipulate the audience's feelings about the relationship or something? Or do you just think that's a bad word, manipulation? I think that's a bad word. I know what you're saying, but at the same time you were saying you're doing the right thing for the scene at that moment, dramatically or comedically. Mm -hmm. So maybe it is, you know, all editing is manipulating. And to me, it was always about telling the story. Mm -hmm. And I hated that word manipulate and if i ever felt myself going in that direction to maybe pull out some extra emotion or something by overcutting a section of it to get more emotion out of it i always back off one of the things that i loved about coal miner's daughter was the movie the way it was directed and sissy and tommy's performances were so real and so genuine 
and Michael Apted's direction was so wonderful that I just was inspired by that. And uh, I just wanted it to be honest. Mm-hmm. And there were times when, like the first time Sissy gets up and sings in a club that I just had to let her do it and not overcut to the audience reactions too many times or to Tommy Lee's reaction and just let the scene go, let the scene play. That's one of my favorite scenes in that movie is that opening, convincing her to go up on stage and... Yeah, it's a great sequence. Fantastic sequence. I just sat back and looked at the dailies on that scene and said, don't you mess this scene up. (laughs) Because you don't have to do anything to make it better. Just be true and as honest as Sissy's performance. Absolutely. Mr. Schmidt, thank you so much for spending so much time with me and for so many candid and interesting answers. I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's been fun. That's it for Out of the Cut this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 300 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Arthur Schmidt, ACE. Also, thanks to Jake Gum, who edited this episode using Adobe Audition. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hallfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a filmmaking or film-loving friend.